the, a friend of mine said, I've got to play you a piece uh, recording. And uh, I said, okay. And um, he put on The Rite of Spring. I think it was conducted by Pierre Monteux, who was a big champion of Stravinsky early on. And uh, it just completely, I just couldn't believe what I was listening to. I'd, I'd never heard anything remotely like it. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. Steve Reich, born in 1936 in New York City, is by many accounts the most important living composer in America, and the case will one day likely be made for the posthumous assignment of this accolade as well. Working primarily with repetitive patterns, some complex, some simple, all of them mesmerizing and ranging in instrumentation from hand claps to full orchestras, Reich's best work builds and interweaves in ways that especially when listened to in a fully immersive manner, are utterly transcendent, like calculus equations that, over time, solve themselves. Even if you're not aware of him by name, his influence can be heard in vast swaths of the landscape of more cerebral strains of pop music of the last 50 years, and especially in the work of forward-looking musicians, ranging from Brian Eno to post-rock quintet Tortoise. However, if all this implies a coldly academic approach to music that can only be appreciated cerebrally, in fact, Reich's compositions are deeply emotional and vividly evocative, as evidenced by this piece, duet for two solo violins and string orchestra, dedicated to and written for Yehudi Menuhin. The first song chosen by Reich as being formative for him was Igor Stravinsky's La Sacre du Printemps, or The Rite of Spring.
Well, I think uh, the Rite of Spring sort of really uh, made me become a composer, to put it very, very simply. I was uh, 14 in 1950. Uh, at that point in my life, I really hadn't heard any uh, classical or notated music before 1750 or after Wagner. And, um, and I also hadn't heard any uh, real jazz either. Uh, and uh, a friend of mine said, I've got to play you a piece uh, recording. And uh, I said, okay. And um, he put on The Rite of Spring. I think it was conducted by Pierre Monteau, who was a big champion of Stravinsky early on. And uh, it just completely, I just couldn't believe what I was listening to. I'd, I'd never heard anything remotely like it. Uh, it seemed like the whole world around me sort of <laughs> changed. Uh, and I just thought that it was the most... <laughs> most wonderful thing I'd ever encountered. Um, as, I, as time passed, I began, you know, looking at the score and listening to other recordings and trying to hear Stravinsky conduct, which he still was doing. Uh, he passed away in 1971. This was, so there was a bit of time to, to go to concerts and hear him. Um, what can I say? The, the, the rhythmic energy in that piece and in many other pieces um, it just struck. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, me too. I I I I was studied percussion at the time, uh, and uh, I am sort of naturally a drummer, and um, it spoke to me very very directly and, and without question. And something totally new rhythmically. Uh, what was it? Well, a lot of it was uh, what later I would understand is to be called changing meters. You know, one two three one two three. One two three, one two three, one two, one two, one two three, one two, etc. Little groups of twos and threes, irregularly placed, mm. um, and that is very prominent in the last part of the writer's spring, the, the dance crowd, and um, I think that resurfaced, sort of un, unasked for, when I was uh, composing Tehali way in 19, uh, 1981, and um, I found myself, you know, reading the the text of the Psalms in Hebrew. And a melody popped in my head. At the same time, this popped in my head. One, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one. I thought, you what is that? And then I thought, wait a minute, this is like, you know, Stravinsky, you know, unasked for is like bubbling up from the, uh, the lower strata in my memory. And um, it, it then persisted and became a real... Um, uh, Second basic rhythmic uh, uh, way of working for me. The first being a kind of all-purpose three, which is either you know one two three four, one two three four, one two three one two three, one two three one two three one two three, uh, which I had been involved with since oh since piano phase way back in the sixties. So um, I owe a great deal to Stravinsky, and uh, I still admire the Rite of Spring and many other pieces of his. And uh, I guess that's about it. Um, what were you listening to before this? You, 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 it sounds like you were pretty familiar with uh, the the quote unquote classical canon, uh, at least as it was at that time. Well, I was growing up in a middle class household, and the, the recordings that were around and the music that I heard, uh, Beethoven Fifth, uh, Schubert Unfinished, uh, over to the Overture to the Meistersinger, uh, you know, the sort of middle class favorites. Uh, the, the Beethoven stuck with me. Basically, uh, I, I really, I am not terribly uh, moved by German or Central European music after Beethoven until we get up to uh, Stravinsky and Bartok. And um, 
that sort of sets me apart from a lot of other people. I've also discovered shortly after the Stravinsky, I mean, weeks after, very shortly after, uh, the Bach Brandenburg Number no. 5, um, which I've actually been modeling for a piece I just completed for ensemble and orchestra, which is a kind of blown-up version of Concerto Grosso, which is uh, what the Brandenburg Concertos are. So the uh, <clears throat> what, what, what became clear was that I'm more interested in, in classical music before 1750 and after 1900. <laughs> and there's sort of this period in the middle where there's Beethoven and, and maybe a little bit of Haydn, and that's about it. Um, so uh, that's where I mostly learned from, uh, medieval music and, uh, and Stravinsky and Bartok uh, uh, on the other end. You're not the first guest of ours to pick uh, the Rite of Spring as a, as a formative uh, piece for them. Um, but at the same time, I, I am wondering about your take on this. It, it seems like it becomes more and more difficult. As great as the piece is and as, I think, undiluted as its power is, it doesn't sound so surprising and shocking, maybe, these days compared to what a lot of people are more generally exposed to and all the things that have come along since, including your music. Um, do you think that that, that that power to shock is still there somehow? Power to shock... Uh, it's not what's interesting at all. It may be, you know, pa passingly, I mean, I've experienced that myself. Uh, uh, when Four Organs was done in 1973 at Carnegie Hall with me and Michael Tilton Thomas and members of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, it caused a riot. Um, it, we repeated it with the San Francisco Symphony in uh, 1996, and everybody applauded, you know. Hey, nice piece. <laughs> the point is that the Rite of Spring is still a great piece to listen to. It's very, very enjoyable music. It's very, very absorbing music. There's a lot to, you know, emotionally respond to and to intellectually, you know, go over. And that's what makes a, cl a classic is a piece of news that stays news. Not shocking, but it's just, it, it keeps, it preserves itself the the excellence of its of its materials and execution just they they last uh, apparently you know as long as we last The second song chosen by Reich as being essential to his development as an artist is a piece by 12th century French composer Paraton, Viderunt Omnies. really know what his name was. That was a, that's kind of a title. It might have been that his name was Pierre. I mean, he's sort of clouded in anonymity. Right, and, and this was, uh, uh, what, late uh, 13th century? Uh, no, no, no. It's about 12th century. It's uh, about, you know, about 11th. Very, so very early 12th century. It, this Puritan work, uh, which follows the work of Leonine, his predecessor, was done at the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, uh, at the close of the, the 11th and 12th century. And um, it's referred to in music history terms as the organum. Organum. And what it is, basically, is uh, taking the Gregorian chant, 
it's the music which follows immediately, you know, after Gregorian chant. It's the first step taken to, to elaborate on that. It's as if you were singing the chant in slow motion. So let's just say in the chant there was this phrase, well, okay, in, in Periton, or in Leonard for that matter, that little line, it requires two tenors to sing how long it is. But it's not a drone. It goes on in modern notation, maybe a page or two. And the second note of the melody comes in. Again, enormously uh, augmented is the musical term for it, elongated. So uh, this little phrase can take, you know, a couple of minutes of music with the melody becoming the harmonic center for what? For in Leonine 1, in Periton 2, 3, or 2, or 3 other voices. So you have, in Periton, the first four-part music we have in, in Western civilization, which has become kind of a standard. Uh, it's odd in Periton because there really is no bass. There's a tenor and three other tenors. Uh, and the music is very closely spaced in, in the middle register around, around the, the tenor. The voices cross over each other. And they are singing, basically, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. It's the first measured music as well. It's called the rhythmic modes derived from a Persian and Leonine in that period. And so, um, for me personally, I was, I was at Cornell University in the 50s um, studying music and philosophy. And um, uh, the music history course taught by Professor William Austin, a fine musicologist who is no longer with us, and a great pianist, a great organist, uh, played this, this piece by this, you know, Periton guy, whoever that was. And I was just knocked out. I said, wow, that's great. Uh, so I went to the library, and there's this book, of the Masterpieces of the Music Before 1750, and there's a little bit of the score. Um, later on, I guess in the... Uh, late 60s, there was an edition made by a woman called Ethel Thurston on Calamus edition, the Complete Works of Periton, which is a very slim volume in modern notation. And um, I, I went over that quite a bit. Now, jumping to what I did, what did it influence? Well, four organs that I alluded to earlier as a piece that caused a scandal. Four organs is basically uh, can be described as short chord gets long, very long. It goes from 11 beats to 256 beats. And it is basically elongating the various notes within the chords, so they kind of you can imagine it as a kind of bar graph, from horizontal bar graph going out from left to right, further and further, with each note having its own tra trajectory. I would never have written that piece, which is basically a, a my take on extreme augmentation, had I not heard the parison. So. Um, and that technique of augmentation also is heard in, in simpler form, actually, in music for mallet instruments, voices, and organ, and in music for 18 musicians, and in many other pieces. So, um, parroting is something that I really, I, <laughs> I say one of the things that you can, that I feel very strongly is you learn most from the music you love. If you're obliged to study something, you can do that, and you will learn something, but it probably will not have the, the potency uh, of learning something from a piece of music that you really love. And Periton was something that I really loved. Uh, it didn't. I, I understand that um, the, the his work had an influence, uh, maybe a more specific influence on a on a piece of yours called Proverb. Uh, yes, very good. Thank you. Yeah, I passed that by. Well, I mean, I was sticking with the early pieces. Uh, Paul Hillier, uh, who's uh, a singer and conductor, 
who is very associated with Arvo Pierre, who's a great conductor I admire enormously, um, was wanted me to write a piece for him, and uh, it ended up being a piece called Proverb, where the text um, came from Ludwig Wittgenstein, who was the philosopher I studied when I was at Cornell, which is basically how small a thought it takes to fill a whole life. Uh, and uh, as you uh, point out, my the subtext there was really an homage to Periton. The whole piece was kind of an homage to Periton. I had his uh, Vitter and Omni, the four, one of the two four-part organ in the big pieces, on the piano as I was writing writing the piece. Um, and um, I, I personally think it's one of the best pieces I ever did. Uh, it's not that long. It's, I think it's a little under 15 minutes. And there's a recording on Nonsuch which was made by Paul Hillier. And uh, so it's uh, something that you can you can hear, and it is definitely uh, unthinkable without without Periton, because it uses canons which don't appear in can in Periton, but they are augmentation canons, so that the whole thing goes from something that you hear as melodic to something that you hear as kind of a, a held harmony, constantly changing inner notes. You know, the, one of the things that I find interesting, and, and I've had a number of well, I've had a number of conversations recently about early music and I'm struck by the fact that it seems to be still almost the secret fraternity, you know, with a, with a, with a handshake. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, it, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's well, it's well known, or at least, you know, people know that it exists early music, but it seems really kind of underappreciated. And I wonder if that's because it's so different sounding now than, than what people are used to thinking of as music or just because people haven't heard it or, or what? Well, I can't, I can't judge, but uh, people, I mean, uh, Nico Muley is someone I've gotten uh, uh, very close with and I, he's devoted to uh, early music and has done some very detailed work on, on uh, William Bird's music and, and other people a little bit later, more in the Renaissance. Um, but, uh, I, yeah, I, I think that uh, starting in the 20th century, which um, now feels a little while ago, I guess more in the later 20th century, uh, a lot of composers began taking a very hard second look at medieval Renaissance music. And what you find there is, uh, in terms of composition, very specific techniques. Uh, I mentioned the augmentation, taking something that is so many beats long and then elongating, and in the case of Perrin, vast, uh, you know, Vast increases of unmeasurable. There's no, we don't know what his, you know, how many court. There weren't any quarter notes or half notes in his time. So, uh, exactly how that was done, we, there, there's no system that we can uh, observe. Um, uh, then the the, ba the basic structure of canon, which goes back, I think, 13th century, Summan is the and was the first uh, weed that we know of. Um, and canon is the backbone of, of of what I've done. I sort of picked it up by. Uh, playing through Bartok's Microcosmos, the, the very first books. Uh, but, I mean, it, it, it's very appreciated by Bartok by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So, um, some very uh, essential, basic techniques without canon, you don't have fugue, um, get born uh, in the medieval period. And they're very, uh, very useful structurally because the, the idea of a what is the canon? Well, you know, what does it sound like? I have no idea what it sounds like. What it is, a sound, some sound, could be somebody speaking, could be... Uh, I, my friend James Tenney, who's no longer with us, did a cannon on a, on a glissando. 
which I called the barber pole piece, and somebody else called Busy Day at JFK. It is a canon. It sounds, you know, like some kind of very strange piece of electronic music. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's an idea where a sound is followed by itself at an unspecified rhythmic distance. And that's wide open to be filled with any sound that you, in the 20th century, 21st century, and on to the future, want to fill it up with. Uh, and that's the durability of these ideas, is that they're empty vessels to be filled with whatever personal material you want to put into them. Final song chosen by Reich was John Coltrane's Africa from the album Africa Brass. Brass by John Coltrane is an absolutely amazing piece, uh, amazing recording. Uh, it dates from 1961, uh, four years before in C, uh, well before anything that is now called minimal music was, uh, was uh, heard. And um, what is striking about Africa Brass is that basically it's all built for 16, 17 minutes on E, the, specifically the low E of the double bass, played by Jimmy Garrison on the recording. Um, so if you were asking, <laughs> I heard about Africa Brass, man, what's the changes, meaning what are the chord changes? E, no, 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 what change? E, E, E for 16, 17 minutes. Well, with that in mind, let's say in 1961, you might think, oh, come on, give me a break. You know, that's, that's, you're, how can that, anything that stays on E for 16, 17 minutes be of interest? Well, how does it work? Uh, number one, you've got Coltrane himself, who's playing soprano saxophone and sometimes playing these beautiful melodic, uh, beautiful melodies. And other times, just screaming noise through the instrument. So you've got a great deal of melodic variety. You've got Eric Dolphy, a wonderful musician, wonderful jazz musician, usually an alto sax player, but also a brilliant um, uh, orchestrator who was writing out the brass parts in Africa Brass and wrote a lot of French horn glissandos, which kind of sound like whoop, 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 like elephants coming through the jungle. So you've got timbral variety, a really wild timbral variety going on there. 
And then you've got Elvin Jones, who's like two or three drummers put into one. He's the most polyrhythmic drummer uh, in the history of jazz. And so if you have that rhythmic uh, energy and vitality and uh, irregularity and the melodic invention and timbre of red, hey, <laughs> 16 minutes on E is not even enough. And the, the, the constant constancy of the harmony makes an intensity. Now, how did it affect me at the time? It was just kind of like uh, you know, a wonderful thing, uh, which uh, I was, along with uh, African drumming, specifically Ghanaian drumming, and Balinese gamelan, both of which I studied by playing them, um, went into forming what I eventually did. But um, specifically, I, I have often thought back, and, and at the time I wasn't thinking about it, to drumming. Drumming is my piece in 1971, uh, ten years after uh, Africa Brass. And I certainly wasn't thinking about Africa Brass when I, when I wrote it, but uh, it's in six sharps for an hour. And, uh, I mean, there's one small modulation during the clock and spill section, but it, it's hardly what keeps the piece going. So you've got constant harmony. You've got a lot of rhythmic complexity in drumming, that's for sure. And the little rhythmic complexity is tied to these interlocking melodic patterns played on the, first on the tune drums and then the marimbas and then the clock and spills. So um, it, 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 later I thought to myself, my gosh, you know, it's the same kind of uh, ingredients to make the piece work. Totally different piece. And I wasn't even thinking about it. But again, as we mentioned earlier with the Stravinsky bubbling up in my head uh, you know, while I'm writing Tehillim, uh, things happen on an unconscious level that are caused by music that you've heard, but you're not necessarily thinking about it at the time. Do you recall when and where you heard it? Oh, it was a recording. And I don't really, really I was in San Francisco. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, I was... Um, I was in the uh, Bernal Heights <laughs> uh, neighborhood in uh, San Francisco, and um, I was there from 61 through 65, uh, getting ready to go to graduate school at Mills College and study with Luciano Berrio. And here, John Coltrane live many, many, many times at the Jazz Workshop. Did you get to see enough shows that you sort of got to watch that progression in his music from more sort of, you know, what people used to call inside to, um, you know, more out? Well, I don't know exactly what, what they mean by that, but I mean, I, I, I saw him play notably with uh, Eric Dolphy, um, and I heard him play, you know, my favorite things, of course, and uh, music of that day. Africa Brass was never done by the quartet, I mean, wisely. I mean, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a recording uh, phenomenon. It was a piece of music which was, uh, for which you needed a, a large brass section. So uh, that was never never played, and in most of the pieces I heard of his, there were some chords, very often just two chords. Um, so uh, yes, it made a big impression, but no, there was no recreation of African Brass. <laughs> This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. Look for and subscribe to all of WYPR's podcasts at wypr.org slash podcastcentral. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to essentialpodcast.com. Thank you.
Thanks for listening. Thank you.